Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. We're at the Christian Baker Farm near historic Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest today is author Charles Niffen. He's written Rude Awakenings, a human world difficult to navigate. His social awkwardness and fear of betrayal create a barrier to human connection. Whether it is being attacked by a bull or enchanted by a fish, he feels the reality of this world and yearns to enter this place of truth, courage, and wisdom. Charles Niffen is a combat-wounded veteran and a lifelong blue-collar essential worker. He's a writer schooled by such greats as William Meredith, John Anderson, and Michael R. Brown. On his long journey, he has encountered many animals, wild and domestic, all which have a voice to teach to those who will listen. He listens, he learns, and loves. Charles Niffen, welcome. Uh, thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, so uh, we've done two books at Sunbury Press by yourself, and uh, the most recent one, Rude Awakenings. And we'll get into the other one a little later in the show, but tell us a little bit about these interactions with animals. What, what brought about Rude Awakenings? Uh the Rude Awakening book is a, uh, it's what I do, I, I was doing for a long time, just going out into the woods and isolating. Now, there's a difference between isolation and uh, solitude. I was, I was trying to work from one to the other, and, and I think I did. I, the, the animals I met along the way would be, as you were saying, the bull, the, the bear, the dog. They, they struck me with three things that I tried to carry away from those interactions, that would be they have a lot of presence, they have absolute honesty, and they can, their their capacity for contentment is, you just watch a cat in a sunbeam, and, and that's what contentment is. Wow. I never thought of it that way, but I completely agree. Oh, to be a cat in a sunbeam, right? <laughs> so, uh, this this wanting isolation um, or, or getting out for uh, solace, I guess you could say, this is part of dealing with the PTSD, or is it just something you, you just enjoy personally? I I as a child, I, I liked the woods. After the war, I needed the woods, um, and and I and I tried to. Ex- Make a difference between, because I was at a, a reading last night or a couple of nights ago, and the fellow reminded me that isolation for somebody with anxieties, PTSD, things like that, is dangerous because hmm. you start fighting with your own brain, and and you become it's it's dangerous. But on the other hand, solitude, which is that kind of just the presence that you get in the woods, like Thoreau uh, might talk about. Is, is a different situation. So it's a perspective, I guess. And I like the animal perspective, which comes from within, and, it, and it's quiet, and it's peaceful. And that's what I seek as a, a person with way too many anxieties of the PTSD sort. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I can quite personally relate to it. I know I take long walks um, many times once a day, at least four or five times a week, multiple miles, in a very nice park, and I 
am able to, it's almost meditation while walking because I'm at first thinking about nothing. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking creatively and thinking about life, thinking about things I need to do, answers to questions or problems. All that seems to come to me during those very peaceful moments. And uh, so I'm kind of thinking, is, do you have a similar experience like that with this this situation? Uh, yes, very much. I, I am, and besides the isolation, the other thing I do is write. Yeah. <laughs> and oftentimes after a walk in the woods, uh, there's a clearing of the mind. I was just reading Stephen King on writing. My wife is doing that for a college course, and uh, that's that's a good method if you if you write uh, that that walk in the woods or that quiet peaceful time when ideas can begin to flow, uh, let's say freely, because a cluttered mind just doesn't work well. And 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 that's my my try with this. I think a memoir oftentimes has a, uh, like, what are you trying to do? If you've been doing drugs, it's, it's like, don't do drugs. If you're a baseball star, it's how to become a baseball star. In, in the PTSD thing, I, I, I believe that the, we, have, we live in a global trauma, a, a global pandemic almost of PTSD, the way the world is going. Mm-hmm. And so I want to help other people through this kind of methodology of writing to find that that space of quiet where you're not just banging away inside your own brain exactly i know it, it, just to kind of carry on with that a little further i'm I'm always amazed or i should say sometimes amazed when i get back to the car or the truck and i'm driving home and i think where did that idea come from it's like all of a sudden i had organized what i was working on whether it was a school assignment working on my my uh doctorate and you know sometimes i get some tough questions to answer or something related to Sunbury press and publishing or just questions about life and sometimes those those answers just come where do they come from charles do you know yep yes it's a it's a it's essential i i it's essential for me for writing and and i believe that for me again that it helped my ptsd now i didn't go into therapy until I was almost, I was 65 years old. So I lived with this my whole life. I always thought I was fine. I looked at other veterans with their hats and their canes and, you know, going on about the war and this and that. And I say, why don't you guys get over it? I I had no sympathy for those fellas. Hmm. And I was living immersed in it at the same time. And one of the things I I worked in the uh, social services and mental health, one of the key factors of a person with uh, a schizophrenia, I don't know, any of the polarities. And I did not recognize my own PTSD until after a, a very frightening situation that, that uh, said, oh boy, you've got to go get some help. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the the other question I wanted to ask you, and I'm, I'm going to get more into the PTSD and, and your experience in Vietnam in the next segment, but uh, real quick before we break, where are you located in Maine? Because as I think about you taking these these peaceful walks, I think you're you're probably in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. Are you not? I often say I'm in what I am the most beautiful place. My my writing, uh, Michael Brown can you know he talks about Bali and all these beautiful places, but for me, this is you know this is a beautiful place, and it is the easternmost 
point of the United States. You can go right out on this little rock, and, and you're there, the uh, West Quaddy Headlight. Um, it's these most, it's the, the little nose on the end of Maine, way up here in the woods. So I spend my time equally on the water or in the woods. Yeah. And both of them are equally challenging, exciting, pacifying, mm, all the beautiful things that, that we've been talking about. What's the nearest town? The nearest big town would be Bangor, Maine. Okay. All right. Now we can place it. All right, Charles. Uh, we'll be taking a break. We'll be right back talking to Charles Niffen, the author of Root Awakenings. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors. If fiction, whether historical, murder mysteries, or spy thrillers take your fancy, check out Milford House Press. Releases of interest include The Physics of Things by Ginny Fight, Checkers on the Hill by Doris Wilbur, or Stephen Greer Williams' Thera. Also, the Alexa Williams series and her two-volume travel memoir, Beyond the Sunset. Explore by clicking on the Milford House tab at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Charles Niffen, the author of Rude Awakenings and uh, enjoying his paradise near Lubeck or Eastport, Maine, east of Bangor, I guess you say, out on the edge, the easternmost point of the United States, perhaps uh, in dispute between the two communities out there. <laughs> I mean, can't you just do a longitudinal line and see which one's which? <laughs> anyway, Charles. Yes, yes the, the east is, like I said, the there's a place called Ship's Rock, and it's a, a, actually a little ledge, mm-hmm. and that pokes out just a little bit further than Eastport. Okay. All right. Well, I guess that's important, huh? <laughs> <laughs> You're closer to Europe. Anyway, um, you know, so a good bit of the background of what we've talked about in, in the first segment has to do with PTSD, and I know you were a Vietnam veteran, and you were sharing that you didn't really recognize your situation until you were 65. Um, That's true. Uh, yes, I, I I thought I was just fine as beans. The fact that I drank way too much, is, we call it self-medication at some point, but when you're really plowing it down, it goes a bit beyond self-medication. Um, and domestic issues, I, I got a divorce. I had a midlife crisis, which blew the doors off. Uh, one of the things about PTSD is it's it's you're just like everybody else, except everything is magnified. The midlife crisis becomes a real crisis. Uh, anxiety becomes panic. Uh, self-consciousness becomes paranoia right. quickly. Mm. And that's one of the distinguishing characteristics. Wow, wow, that's so well described. Um, so kind of taking you back, I know the prior book we did with you was 50 Years in a Foxhole. So that title is so well explained by what you just said. If you think of 50 years since you served in Vietnam, dealing with this this experience of PTSD, um, how, looking back, how do you how do you look at your service in the military now that you've been through all this? Uh, I I speak to that often in my book things uh, readings. I loved and hated the Marine Corps. I was a. I, I started like a lot of us do as a, as a dropout, a hoodlum. I was at one foot into the slammer, and I just signed up at 17 to go. And then the, the uh, boot camp was a shock. And what I say later in life is that what it does is it completely obliterates the ego, and it 
makes you a team. You become a tribe, like at the animal level of, with these other guys. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's remarkable. And when you leave it, you're once again cast adrift in a world that ha- doesn't have that connectivity. And you kind of seek it. It's, it's, a, it's a peculiar thing. I, I mean, I, I, I really like that aspect. I, I despise the aspect of war. I'm, I'm one of those, you know, I don't like war. Can we stop that? I thought perhaps Vietnam would be a, 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 a brainstorm moment. We would say, wasn't that foolish, boys? Do we, do we have to do that again? But clearly it didn't take. So I went on to the PTSD trying in my, in my work to try to deal with that because it wasn't discovered actually as a diagnosis until somewhere in the 80s, relatively new and, and long after the Vietnam War. But it was through that war that it was discovered. And then, as I was saying earlier, you know, the, it, it pops up everywhere in domestic violence and wars across and, and refugees. It's just rampant. Yeah, yeah. We, what you're saying about war, you know, World War One was supposed to be the war to end all wars. And then guess what? Yeah. You know, World War Two, and then Korea and then Vietnam. And, you know, and then we have this... Uh, War on TV with the Gulf War, which was mm-hmm. uh, fascinating to watch at home on whatever news channel you watched, and you know war became uh, more and almost like a video game. So, uh, yeah, I hear you. And so b- back with your Vietnam experience, what do you think about it? Like the boot camp wasn't the cause of your PTSD. You say that was more building camaraderie and bringing order and schedule to your life. What about the marine experience that led to the PTSD? Was it the the uncertainty about your life? Was it the uh, effect you were in the front lines using your rifle against the enemy? What was it? I'm I'm guessing that it's that it's the the, the war experience, which is is itself traumatic. It is it's it's you you I uh, you become very animal like in that sense. You know we. And, and a lot of oppressed people do that. You become very present. You find your own joy in a can of sea rations. But then there's the terror, which does kind of accompany the, the entire experience. Because I was a frontline troop the whole time. Yeah. I I went out when I when I was going there. I heard the statistic was five percent casualties. And I'm a fellow who do, does the math. Right. And I, I, I'm a, I know how to stay in the middle. And I said, school fish, I'll just stay in the middle. I'm good. And then I got there, and that statistic changed dramatically when I discovered 10% of the troops are in the bush where I was. That's now 50%. And it yeah. was 50%. We were dying regular. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's... Yeah, that, that itself is a trauma. And then perhaps the... You know, the self-medication, trying to forget it, the, the crazy dreams. I went through all that crazy dream business. I was scared to death. When my first two years out of the military, I was still on reserve, and I was afraid they were going to come and get me. Wow. <laughs> and I would wake up in the middle of the night covered in sweat. and I, I, I had it pretty bad, but again, you know, I didn't, I, I, it didn't register on me. And it, it wasn't diagnosed until the 80s that it was even a thing. So I thought, as so many military guys do, uh, they're just pussies. And mm-hmm. I hate to use that word, but when we talk about this stuff again, um, and 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 it took a long time for me to go into the fold, so to speak, and seek therapy. And the therapy is basic. 
my fellow combat um, soldiers and Marines and sailors, the counselor is kind of there just as a, as a central piece of glue around which we rotate and we heal one another just by being able to be there. We are everybody there. There's, there's the Hillary haters and there's Trumpists and there's every, you know, there's older veterans and younger veterans of different colors. And we've had a couple of women through, but we're all together. And it's, it's an amazing sensation. And I think anybody in a, in an acting troupe feels that or whatever, a team, it's, it's yeah. a beautiful thing without ego. That's all I can say about that particular side of the, the equation. So you, I mean, you mentioned about uh, how you were on the front lines and we've done a number of other books by Vietnam veterans and, and Joe Fair's uh, Call Sign Dracula is one that sold very well, and he also served on the front lines in the Big Red One. But then uh, Van Carter's book about Remph, the rear echelon MFs, and uh, how most of the guys were not on the front lines, and that was boring, and you're dealing with the tedium and and all the the stuff um, of that experience. But you, you know, you were you were right there with the action. Um, is there a Hollywood movie that portrays accurately your experiences in Vietnam that you've ever seen? Or I should ask the question, have you ever been able to watch a Hollywood movie about it? I, I, I've seen a couple, and, and some of the experiences, I remember the Platoon movie, and to me that was like a cop movie, because a cop movie, you know, in, in one week or one day, that particular guy will do what what a you know a normal policeman might do over a course of his of his career, yeah. and so they tried to cram each thing. Oh, here's the the bomb blowing up. Here's the mortar land, and here's the attack. You know, and all of that happens somewhere every day, but it doesn't happen to you every day. I've had enough happen to me, and in terms of ambushes and mortars and stuff like that. But it it's it's not constant. Uh, so, so I don't, and and so the, yes and no. You know, mm-hmm. they have to try to cram it all into a single movie, and and uh, I, I understand that. Uh, but I, I've, I don't know if I shied away from the movies. I see them and I kind of forget about them as fast as I can. I, I like, I don't know. There's something about a war movie that I've, I've, I've always been attracted to. Before I went overseas, we were in California training out in Camp Pendleton and we'd go on uh go out into the town ocean city or where, wherever it was and the 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 theaters were full of war movies all world war 2 movies and and they, they were just full of them. I I don't know if they were trying to get us prepped up or what it was amazing well, well we're talking to Charles Niffen we're going to take a break we'll be right back Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors from Pennsylvania and beyond. Check out Wiley McClellan's Unbridled Dreamer, Hemingway and the Rise of Modern Literature. If you're into sports, Kelly Parks, Just Like Me, When the Pros Played on the Sandlot, or Legendary Sports Figures by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley. If history is your interest, Mildred Schindler Jansen's true story of surviving Hitler, evading Stalin, or the French invasion of Western Pennsylvania by Donald Kent. Find these and other great books at sunburypress.com. I'm back with Charles Niffen, the author of Rude Awakenings and 50 Years in a Foxhole. Uh, Charles, um, fascinating that they had all those like John Wayne uh, 
World War II movies for the Marines to go see before you get sent overseas. Uh, I don't know if that's really preparing you for what you experience, but um, I'll just say thank you for your service and bring you back to the present. I know um, up there in Maine where you are, you recently had an experience with a whale skeleton that was fascinating, and I know we're going in a completely different direction here, but it kind of ties into what you're doing. Um, if you could kind of share what that was about. Uh, sure. I've, I've, I've been a solo kayaker for about 25 years up here, and I've actually run across, oh, four or five whale skeletons. But this one was right on the beach, Maori Beach, where the people walk every day. And there was a, a hump showing where the, my dog would gnaw on it. And my wife asked what it was, and I said, that's a whale bone. And, uh, then we talked to some people, and they, it had been a 54-foot thin-back whale washed up, and then it stunk up because it was so close. It's just a quarter of a mile from the village. And it, and so they brought a backhoe down and buried it, and then it started to resurface. And so we got a crew. We got the College of the Atlantic. We had the all the permission from the NOAA people and uh, the, the, local, the local college kids and the clamors and the, uh, I think it was Bill Ramsdale with a big giant excavator came down and we dug up a good portion of it. The skull, which that's about a 600 piece of machinery there, it's the size of a, I think a, those little, those little a Mini Cooper. Yeah, that's a, that's a, almost the exact size. Wow. And we brought it home, not not to home, but uh, we buried it because it still had muck on it. And we have it down at our shop at um, 72 Water Street down here in Lubeck. That that's the old uh, Peacock's Peacock Sardine Factory. We're trying to get it back. Uh, it's it's such a beautiful building, but it's 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 gone down, you know. And, and we're trying to recover it with with art and science and taking this bone. We want to make a whale fall. That's where you put it in a big aquarium mm-hmm. and. When a whale dies at sea, there's actually an environment that grows up around that carcass, which is so large that that out of that death there comes all this life. And we wanted to get the put it in an aquarium and get the the um, the local I don't, urchins and fish, whatever's around here, and, and 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 put a story to it. Put a story to it. Bring it back. We have a a book, Putep, the uh, lost finback of of uh, Lou Beck, a, a small kid's book that, that was fun to do. Yeah. But, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I know. I appreciate you, uh, you know, bringing attention to the issue, which, you know, is environmental and certainly about endangered species as well, but also about the history of the community that you live in. And at one point, whaling, I'm guessing, was pretty important along the coast. I know certainly it was off of Nantucket and down in the Cape Cod area, but I'm sure they... Um, came up your way back in the day to uh, to do whaling. So, you know, you mentioned four or five whale uh, skeletons that you've seen in your uh, travels, but have you come across any living whales while you were kayaking? Uh, yes, that's the first story in my rude awakenings. I was, uh, I, I've been across a few of them right off of uh, our island, Campobello Island, is attached by a bridge to Lubeck, and there's a, a whale feeding zone right on the end of their island, so there's a lot of whales 
travel out there, but I, I, I see them in my kayak. And the, my, my first story was actually going out and the weather turned bad on me and it got real rough. And I, I, I got scared because I was being, the, the waves were washing over me and I, it was, it was just very frightening. And finally, I got out of the really rough zone where the current and the winds had been arguing with one another. And it should have been manageable. It was still rough, but manageable. But I was really scared. You get what, 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 kayakers angst and, and you can't be tense in a, in a kayak. You're going to just tip over if you get tense. And I was tense. And all of a sudden, I look out to the side through the, it's fog and mist and there's this, big dorsal fin and this huge mass of animal and I recognize it's a whale and it parked right to the windward side of me so I got to sit in the lee and we sat there for a little while and I got my wits back about me I could breathe the the, the water slowed down on the other side of the whale and it, I, I put in my you know he talked to me he said take it easy pal yeah. it's water what kind you of got whale? a good boat what and kind I did I, I relaxed and went on my way and said, thank you, whale. What kind of whale was that? There, There's a question right there, because I've been trying to identify it. I call it the green whale. It was it was brownish brown, like an, like an old navy blanket, but, but with that green tint in it. It had a pretty darn large dorsal fin, and it was very long. The only large dorsal fin are pilot whales and orcas. Yes. But it was... I don't think it was, it could have been a fin whale. This is what I'm settling on, kind mm -hmm. of. A fin whale is the large whale, and I was researching their their fins. It's a pretty good-sized dorsal. Okay, so, so how long is your kayak? Uh, the kayak's about 17 feet, and he was, you know, double that easy. So I would have a an oh-my-God moment. You're talking about calming <laughs> down in your kayak when something like that surfaces next to you? I mean... <laughs> uh, expletives expletives we're beeping them out right now i'm like <laughs> not gonna curse on this show but this it obviously warrants like a uh, whoa i mean yes. you you didn't tip over i mean you didn't have a jonah the whale moment where this thing pops you in its mouth and spits you back out <laughs> i mean wow i was absolutely pacified after uh. i sat there first i had that shock you know because i thought oh my christ it's a sea monster yeah but then i then i went to whale you know and and uh and i relaxed i relaxed that whale the animals like i was reading about horses horses have this like quadruple the amount of the beta waves that come out of a person's heart or what i i don't know the exact language but they have a pacifying effect and whatever that is, that whale just radiated. I got in the aura of the animal in this tumultuous sea, and I just was, boy, I was like being in the mantle of Jesus or something. I was just good to go. Wow. Amazing experience. Amazing, and then you connected with it almost metaphysically. Uh, that That is an amazing story. Well, we're just about out of time, so I'm going to ask you here in the final minute, uh, what are you writing now? Do you have anything else that you're working on? I, uh, I, I, I'm torn between writing a novel and as at my last reading, the woman introduced me as a memoirist. And I'm thinking, am I a memoirist? Because I have, I wrote a story from the perspective of my ego, 
which is 50 years, the rude awakenings and that inner beast is the id. And I'm thinking, oh, the superego, the people that I have crossed paths with over these many years are some fascinating folks. And so I might try a memoir intertwining the experiences and travels through them and what I learned from human beings. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd strongly encourage you to do that because you have such great stories to tell. And, you know, truth is often stranger than fiction. And you've had quite a life experience between uh, your youth in Vietnam and then the years since. And now, my God, meeting a whale like that right next to your kayak. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> you know, readers should know that Pick Up Rude Awakenings, there's other stories in it. Maybe not quite as dramatic as the whale experience, but also very... Uh, deep thinking. So, uh, Charles, it's been great talking to you. We're definitely going to have you back when you do that other memoir. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts. <laughs>